two of our episode from October 19th. I'm joined by Spencer. Spencer, how are you? Uh, BJ, what's up? How's it going? In this episode, like the last one, uh, Levi Baxter Turner in lovely Boston is having some construction done, so he's be more quiet than normal, but I think we still have him. BJ, or uh, sorry, Levi, you there? All right, well, we just wrapped up episode one. From this uh, recording, where Spencer told us all that he once wore a shirt where he put his head through a hole in the shirt. Um, very fascinating story. We hit the on-brand segment, but now we are going to cut to just anything we have in our mind. I have something I'd like to bring up. I can lead with it now unless somebody else has something that they're really excited to jump into. I do have something that I'm very excited to jump in. Um, are you guys out on James? On LeBron? Yep. Well, I got thoughts. Do you want to you try our whiskey? Uh, yeah, Let, let's uh, do the whiskey first. So um, uh, so this is Leitrig. Um, I did mention this on one of our Pottering Around podcasts when we were talking about whiskeys that are hard to pronounce. It's spelled E-L-E-D-A-I-G, and it's essentially pronounced Leitrig. Um, it is... That's not how I pronounce that. A C-H in there at all. Nope. Or K or any noise. Nope, none of those things. Um, this is... Probably a little bit worse than Bunahaven, but still pretty bad. Um, and so this is a little bit more on the um, PD side. Um, right. By a little bit, I kind of mean a lot. Um, and I will tell you that one of the very nice things that my girlfriend did when she came back from Scotland is got me a bottle of this that I believe is an 18-year-old version that was aged in sherry cast that is delicious. And you can sort of tell when you taste the two side by side, like, where this this 10 year old like went for 18 years and became even better um but um the, so this is one of my uh my friend Aton. so he was the one that introduced me to old Pultney, old Pultney and also to uh the Leitrig and this is sort of one of his favored peated whiskeys that is sort of a little bit off the the beaten track but still findable and good I, I described the last one as earthy. This one, this one smells like you just pulled a piece of peat out of the earth and are using it as potpourri in my room. That is, yeah, it's got a it's got a heavy peat smell. Um, yeah. This to me um, tastes like what I like the quintessential Scotch flavor to me. It's like a very straightforward traditional Scotch. It's if I was ordering a Scotch blindly, this is what I would want it to taste like. Um, it's why people drink scotch with cigars or have scotch after meals. It's just perfect for those things. So mm-hmm. uh, my review is it's a <clears throat> very straightforward, very quality scotch. I'm interested to hear what the price point is. Though. Um, I believe this is about the same, about 50. Um, Completely reasonable price for that. Yeah. Um, and so the other thing that this brings to mind for me is campfires. Like, it, we we joke about Spencer, you know, talking about you know the campfire taste that at Bernie, but like this is sort of to me how like camping smells. And um, one of the other things that that this friend would have every so often is bonfires in his backyard, and and this is sort of like the distillation of of that into a bottle. Yeah, no, I agree. It's just a. Uh... Again, it's a very straightforward, well-done scotch. I don't think I like it as much as the other one, and that's only because the other one we tried uh, in part one, to me, was a little bit more distinct. Mm-hmm. Um, Quite like anything I'd had before. 
but they, I mean, not knocking this at all. This is good. Yeah, I feel like. Yeah, I feel like this is like having um, a lot of the good, you know, slightly older, like semi run of the mill, like some of the eagle rares and something like that, where you kind of know exactly what you're gonna get, and it's good, and it's gonna be good every time. Exactly. Yep. That's a good. That's a good comparison with the eagle rare. Spencer, you like it? Yeah, for a second, what'd you say? I don't have enough frame of reference to call it traditional because I don't I haven't tried enough scotch to say what that is. Poetic, but what it reminds me of is kind of like a deep smoldering fire. Uh, it's got this kind of really deep, between smoky and peaty kind of taste. Um, it's got kind of like a bit of heat in my mouth, particularly when it starts to go down my throat. Um, it's fine. I like the first one better. I like the other scotch whiskeys we've done on this program a lot more. Um, but I don't dislike it. It feels, again, I don't have enough frame of reference to say it, it, that, it, that it's usual for scotch, but it almost just tastes like something that would be traditional. Um, that's not criticism. It's just, it's just not my particular taste. You seem like a scotch guy to me. I guess not. I mean, I really only had scotch, probably literal scotch, like maybe two times in the past, and I did not particularly enjoy it. Uh, but I don't remember them well enough to say whether this is what they remind me of. Two more scotch episodes um, yeah. so, to, get, to get you a little bit more frame of reference so for them. We've had a reasonable amount of scotch on the program, not tons, because it's a little bit harder to find. Um, and we should definitely do some more before the, uh, I think, 20, 25% tariff hits. Um, but, um, anyway. so, Spencer, what I kind of want to differentiate for you and, and sort of people in general is like the there there's sort of two different scotches that, that they come from they sort of come sometimes from different places but they're peated and unpeated scotches and sometimes you've liked peated scotches which i i thought was uh, a thing that you just didn't like that you didn't particularly like peated scotches um but we had one a uh, handful of episodes ago that that you actually did quite like um and and as we progress, we'll we'll try and figure out and sort of refine, you know, where exactly your palate is. But I, I do think that there are a lot of uh, both Highland and Lowland distilleries that I think will be of more interest to you. Um, Lee, you had a Glen Morangi, um, and I think some of the Glen Morangis, Spencer, you might have had that I feel like you will enjoy particularly ones that have been aged in like sherry cast. So they have some of that sweetness. They have, you know, some mm -hmm. fruit character to them and, and, and things like that. So, um, I mean, Old Pulteney, I'd say, is just as, to a certain extent, just as much a very typical scotch mm -hmm. as the leche. They're just very different expressions of it. I mean, we, we've done, I, I remember us trying out several very peaty scotch whiskeys or, or other things on this program, and I've enjoyed them. Um, I guess just the particular flavor mix of this one strikes me as fine, but if I had another option, it'd be there, there'd be many other options I would pick compared to this. Yeah, and BJ, that's a good point. I guess when I was talking about Old Pulteney, it's like I don't know. I don't even that brand that kind of divergence, right, with the really heavy peat, what we're having now, like what I was calling more traditional, and then the stuff that's not as peaty, not as smoky, maybe has a little sweetness, kind of a couple fruit flavors. 
I don't even mentally kind of think of that as scotch, which I guess is kind of stupid on my part. But when I think of scotch, I'm always thinking, all right, I want something heavy smoke. I'm outside with a cigar. That's what it is. Yeah, and I look, I don't think that's unreasonable because because it is such a differentiation from other whiskeys out there. And so, like, if you were to choose something that that would identify like scotch to you, I think that's perfectly reasonable. I mean, I think that it's, you know, it's like an Argentinian wine. You think of like Malbecs and heavy dark grapes, but they're gonna have white wines. You know, they're gonna be there, but. And and so South American wines are, are really, really good. But if you were to like have a picture in your head of or a taste in your mouth of like what it is, you're going to go to that like heavy, heavy hitting wine. Chip right in the back of the cheek. Yeah, no, yeah, that's a, that's a good comparison. All right, cool. All right, so BJ, you want to know what Levi and I think about LeBron James. Yep. First of all, I would like to say um, I have no comment on this issue. Um, I think, you know, politicians <laughs> can talk about this. Um, I have nothing to say. Um, and I do in, like the good people of China and Hong Kong. Thank you. I'm out. I'm just kidding. Uh, but that's Are what basically every sometime NBA soon. <laughs> that's what basically every NBA player is doing. Um, I think LeBron James is just kind of more stupid than people think he is. Um, cause that, he just sounded ignorant. He's just like, first off for him to say, and it just people listening, basically what happened is, uh, the Houston Rockets GM general manager of the Houston Rockets, he tweeted a support for Hong Kong and this ongoing sort of, uh, back and forth with Hong Kong and China over the level of oversight, um, and, uh, Chinese government in Hong Kong and the level of independence Hong Kong will have. That's a really condensed version of what's going on. Uh, NBA does a lot of business in China. China freaked out. I think overreacted considering the fact Twitter isn't even in China. So like it, the people wouldn't even have seen it, but they flipped out, got mad at the NBA. It became this whole thing. Then LeBron James and Infinite Wisdom came out and said that Daryl Morey, Rockets GM, didn't know what he was tweeting, that he was ignorant somehow, which for somebody like, for fucking LeBron James to call Daryl Morey ignorant about anything is just laughable. Um, and then he went on to like these really crazy comments that made it kind of sound like he was supporting China and all this. Uh, he tried to walk it back in a couple of tweets about an hour later, but it didn't really stick. Uh, and now the NBA world has turned against LeBron James. Levi, is that a fair assessment of what happened? Fair assessment. Um, I think it's also important to point out that Ray, he's the GM of the Houston Rockets, but he is—he is, comes from an analytical background. He's sort of this breed of, of NBA general managers that come from a very um, decision theory, math-heavy sort of. It, it, and more expansive uh, personnel in, inside of sports than, than a traditional, you played the sport for your entire life and you're, you're raised in this culture and you do this, right? So this is a person who who has an education, has a, a broader worldview, um, and and yes, uh, LeBron James is, is not uh, popular in NBA circles right now. Um, we also should say that LeBron James has HM2. It's going to be coming out soon. Um, well, that to hit that China market. Box office take in uh, in China. Uh, yeah, I mean it's just you know, it's it's overall it's a, it's a little rough, right? Because like LeBron James and Gary and I were communicating about this separately um, individually. I mean LeBron James is amazing, right? He 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 came out of high school. Um, he in fact is the same age as as, as we are. Uh, he, he went to um, college in two thousand three. 
Um, but he came out of high school and he, he's basically had maybe a couple of mistakes here or there, but has had a pretty darn flawless career. Um, I mean, turn, I mean, the decision obviously is a mistake, right? It's not compared to how other NBA athletes have done. He's threaded the needle perfectly well of, of, of being vocal on social issues while also being commercially viable as well as a great athlete who's, who's had a stunning career, which is a bit amazing, right? He's, he, he, he hasn't had any major um, extracurricular drama in his life. Um, he's just been sort of a, a fantastic player head of the NBA for all these years. And this is a, a, a pretty sad note uh, for him to, to start to end his career on, um, which is basically him being very concerned about making money, which is a very fair concern, right? If, you, if you're going to lose $20 million, I get it. Don't wrap it into someone who doesn't understand the complexities of the situation and is making a very naive choice. Yeah. Also, I mean, my frustration with it is he's, he's openly and blatantly hypocritical because when Colin Kaepernick was taken a knee in the NFL, he, Colin Kaepernick took heat for that because it was fucking with the NFL's money because people stopped watching, sponsors pulled out, et cetera, et cetera. LeBron was very, very critical of anybody saying anything negative of of, uh, of Colin Kaepernick. He said, no, Kaepernick should be able to do this. He he went so far as to say, I, I'm going to speak out. I won't shut up and dribble. And the same exact thing is happening. Daryl Morey is speaking out, and it's fucking with the NBA's money. And LeBron heel turns and says, no, we shouldn't be wading into these issues. We shouldn't be screwing with it. Like As soon as it started to fuck with his money or potentially fuck with his money, then he had a problem with it, but back with the, with the NFL, when him speaking up for Colin Kaepernick wasn't going to hurt his money, oh, he was very happy to to get in these social justice issues and and speak out as a as an athlete. So I think it's just it, the hypocrisy of it really uh, hits me. And I, I've never been a big LeBron James fan, so I'm uh, kind of predisposed to not like him. Um, but Levi's point is a fair one that he has. He's been a figurehead of the NBA for a long time. He seems like a good husband, good father, good person. But it's just, you know, nakedly capitalistic for him to, you know, come out and say, well, we shouldn't be talking about the stuff. And, you know, in, in essence, it's like not openly, but kind of kind of supporting China in this whole thing, which is kind of bullshit. Yeah. So the the funny thing that I, I mean, I heard some analysis um, hashtag on brand on NPR um, where they were <laughs> talking about this, um, which a lot of it was. So one of the fascinating uh things that somebody said was, was like, well, he's not commenting about the HK situation. He's just talking about the whole tariff back and forth. Um, the, and it was just like, mm-hmm. for, for somebody on, uh, NPR to be saying that, that is, uh, a person of color and, and not at least somewhat sympathetic and saying to other people's difficulty and plight uh seemed a little bit weird to me that it was just like oh well it's just a money thing and he's just worried about like the nike contracts and stuff like that and you know the the tariff issues that are that are happening between the us and china which was just like uh i mean you're not a basketball person because you're not talking about like the basketball implications for this you're talking about like the uh freedom of speech and and you know what's going on in the media part of this and that's a very 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 weird angle for somebody on this program to take um yeah 
Um, I, I will point out there's been a development in this story, though. <clears throat> the commissioner of the NBA, Adam Silver, who I'm a big fan of, has said openly now that the, after Daryl Morey did this tweet, that the Chinese government pressured him to fire Daryl Morey, which he couldn't do. He would have to get the Houston owner, I think, to do it. But he probably could make that happen if he wanted to. And he said, no way that's happening. And no way we're even going to punish him. So sorry. Uh, yeah. And and then after <laughs> him saying that publicly, the Chinese government on their state media said that Adam Silver would pay one way or another um, for basically uh, insulting the Chinese um, government. And so then they kick it back to Silver and Silver's like, I'm not sure we're ever going back to China. I mean, they just basically threat. I mean, they openly threatened me. I, I don't know that the NBA is ever going back. Yeah. And yeah, Spencer. Question. Uh, this, this is just something I've heard and reading about these stories, but I don't actually know. China's a very large market for the NBA, right? And China's become quite interested in um, basketball haven't they, in the, over, the, over the last few years. 300 million, million people watched the uh, NBA finals last year in China. Is it is my, is my memory of the number, yeah. Which, obviously, that's now becoming their largest market, I would say. Yeah. I, I feel like that's sort of part and parcel with so many other things that are, you know, being taken over by the Chinese market. You know, whiskey, wine. Um, basically, e everybody is looking to China for, for so, so many other things. Um, but I did like the development that there was a um, producer that bought like a couple hundred tickets um, at an NBA game and basically for uh, activists and they wore a bunch of like, we support Hong Kong t-shirts in like prime TV area, which was a, a very funny response to this in my opinion. It has, been, it has been interesting as a result of what's been going on in Hong Kong, how many US companies, US organizations have been running in this kind of similar thing of where people have been catching them doing actions to appeal to the Chinese government to avoid losing the lucrative contracts or lucrative business that they're doing there. NBA has been one of the most, it's been one of the most discussed in the media because you know, politicians have been talking about it now. Um, but the, one of the large video game companies, Activision Blizzard, had a blow up recently. Apple and its app store had a blow up recently. Uh, DreamWorks with the nine dash line, one of their films. This has been affecting a lot of U.S. companies of where people are starting to realize, you know, they've been doing this for a while. It's just because of Hong Kong, it's become a lot more apparent. Yeah. So yeah, and I mean, uh, sorry, Vijay, but I I do want to point out here, and I don't know if you caught me because I think my audio cut out. That I think that in all of these battles, the people who lose are the Chinese citizens because. They the reason the NBA is popular popular there is because they they like the NBA. The Chinese people want to watch the NBA, and the more the back and forth that goes on with the NBA and the Chinese, who knows? They might black out all NBA games, and now the couple billion people or whatever that live there now don't have access to that. And it's the same thing with like movie studios or any other you know entertainment or a product or whatever from the West. If they get into this thing with the Chinese government and they ban it, it's just less shit that the Chinese people have access to. Um, so Spencer, to, to some of your point about like, you know, maps and like what people include and things like that. Um, I wonder how much of that is actually catering and how much of that is, is just laziness or, you know, somebody Googles something and it's like the first thing that pops up because apparently in a lot of maps, New Zealand isn't on there. Um, and there's literally... <laughs> a subreddit dedicated to like people posting maps and in where like New Zealand just isn't on like a world map. Um, and so I can totally see at least a chunk of that being like, you know, some artist or developer doesn't want to like, 
go go up the chain to try and figure out like which map are we using rather just like grab some map from somewhere like overlays you know whatever uh uh stuff using and and then just sort of like 100 percent goes with it um i but my presumption yeah go ahead but like i 100 percent agree with you that there are definitely going to be instances where the choice is made very very carefully and i just don't know where where that lies just to explain for our listeners what we're talking about with the map thing, uh, DreamWorks recently came out with a film, Abdominal, which is actually getting great reviews about, you know, a, a Chinese-American family going off and finding the Abdominal Snowman in the Himalayas. Um, it was co-produced by a Chinese animation company. And I suspect that partly because of that, uh, there has been one or two scenes of where in the background, when the female character is like plotting her trip to China, the Chinese map includes what's called the nine-dash line which is a series of nine dashes that extend from southern China down through the South China Sea along the border of the Philippines, along the border of Indonesia, along Vietnam, back up, indicating that that is Chinese territory. Uh, obviously, this is not accepted by inter international authority. The international, when the international courts recently just found that it was very much illegal um, in a ruling in favor of the Philippines. But this is the norm in China. Every Chinese textbook, every Chinese map includes the nine-dash line because they've asserted that despite the fact this is hundreds of miles from their territory, they own this because they say so. And so is, is that more of like a um, a hurricane path or, uh, you know, is, is this another one of the uh, them pouring cement on... Building islands yes. in, in that area so that they can assert territory and put flags up and then assert territorial influence around it. Because there's a substantial amount of natural resources that are presumed and found to be in that area that they're claiming and trying to keep any of the countries that are actually close to it away from it. Gotcha. So I, I remember hearing about this and I, I, I'm curious that it's sort of not reported anymore, but maybe it's just sort of like an accepted thing. But for some period of time some completely unreasonable amount of cement was being poured on essentially undersea volcanoes or, or undersea mountains for for china to like say hey this is actual land like it's technically maybe above water at some point and it was like in the millions of tons or something like that that they were trying to do for fishing rights and and a bunch of other things um, and so for, for our listeners, Levi has posted um, basically what looks like um, China with like an added uh, path to touch Alabama off of the uh, Easter point of it. Version of the Trump Sharpie. Yeah. That basically. For you, Spencer, I'm counting 10 lines here. It's referred to as the nine dash line. I can't speak for how ESPN chose to do it. Chose to do it. Fair point. Yeah. So. Since, since we're all looking at the same image and then listening at home or not, um, this nine dash line also uh, affected ESPN. ESPN, during the, the preseason games in China, when they had a lot of reporters there in China, um, aired a graphic of uh, the, the Chinese state and it included that, that sort of traversial territorial expansion there, which is, again, um, just China being quite uh, aggressive about trying to assert their territorial claims. Um, with almost lazy media, right? They if it's given to them, fantastic. They don't have to create it themselves. Yep, it, 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 it's so widespread in China. It's not even a question of where they're. 
in their minds, if a company isn't running that, it's not an accurate map because that's all they're taught. That's all it's all, all the maps that are available. It's been very much hammered into the culture that we own this. This is our territory. And so if a U.S. company did not run with that map, people would complain that they're running an inaccurate map. They're not representing the full the fullest scope of Chinese territory. So I'm sure it makes it difficult for companies that are marketing there to appease everybody because use the DreamWorks example, their film has now been banned in uh, Vietnam, and I think the Philippines was pondering it because of how sensitive this issue is to them, that you've endorsed a, mo a model of territory that basically says China owns our waters like five miles off our coast. I think this is that difficult of a situation. Like, <laughs> China just made some shit up, and they they told their citizens, like, that, that's no reason to, like, run with the made-up map. Like, but now they've told companies that are operating there, you've got to run with our maps. How, do you think before um, the U.S. has a map with just, like, random dotted Sharpie all over like where all of our military bases are and and any any point that that you know somebody has sort of decided it's like well we essentially have people there so this is part of our land double bolded sharpie line at the southern border yep you know somebody kind of did that like several times <laughs> i mean the monroe doctrine is basically just telling the world that the entire western hemisphere is ours to deal with no one outside of it can mess with it we did that back in the early 1800s and then, you ever heard of the Guano Act? Yeah, yeah, I just heard about it. You, you mentioned it. Okay, good talk. Just kidding. <laughs> Go ahead. We Seems basically like a kind of shitty thing to do. <laughs> we basically passed a law that said that we could arbitrarily uh, assert ownership over any islands in the Pacific that were nests for bats and had large supplies of guano due to its fertilizer potential. We just basically declared that that they are oh. ours now. Question for you, Spencer. Maybe you know this read of history is that somebody from the United States government went to Hawaii and just said, oh yeah, this is great. We're just going to take this. Like we just like took that off the board super fast. Uh, what essentially happened was, is that there was an increasing amount of Western influence, including supported by fruit companies uh, that led to a mix between coup, I'll call it a coup of where a substantial portion of the military that was Western controlled and local uh, immigrants from primarily the United States overthrew the monarchy. And basically went to the United States government and said, okay, we're in charge now. Annex us, please. And we just kind of went, sure. Sure, nice there. Yeah, we can do that. Queen is literally, the Queen, Queen Lily Akalani is literally demanding that she be returned to her throne here to U.S. Congress. But no, we'll just annex you. Thanks. Great talk. Vacation spot. <laughs> okay. All right. Anything else about the China NBA Hong Kong thing? I mean, just to give you an example, right? Um, so the company I work for, we have a software product. The software product has mapping capabilities. Um, it, it, it comes up, um, not just the the China, China, Tibet, uh, China, um, the South Pacific um, Sea, also uh, Western uh, Western Morocco versus whatever it's called. Like there, there's a lot of these controversial places. If you, Western we, Sahara, I think. It's Western, um, there's controversial areas around the world that we're, we're the outsiders we don't care at all. Like there are deeply motivated uh, people who get very pissed off when they see that you you uh, made a political choice with your mapping. I put in East and West Germany just every so often, just to just be like, oh, sorry, uh, we're a little out of date. Um, we're catching up. We're doing our best. The Nazi Empire, just like Germany is just half of Europe. Heck, if you go to the Russian version of Google versus you go to the part we get, there's a certain debate whether the Crimea is part of Russia or not. 
Um, I have something if we're ready to move on. Let's All right, it. so we probably got as political right then as we've gotten for a long stretch, and that's because it's not we weren't really talking about domestic politics. Uh, BJ shuts that down quickly because he's running for town council. Uh, but I do want to address the debates that are ongoing. Uh, right now, we're in the midst of the run-up to the 2020 election. The Democrats are having debates every, I don't know, six weeks or something like that. And I watch them because I love politics. Now, I, I'm a liberal, I'm a Democrat. I would, I, I'm interested in the Democratic debates, but I would be watching Republican debates, too, if it were Republican, just because I, I follow politics that closely. And I am starting to believe that the current debate structure that we have is fundamentally broken. I mean, it's not going to produce any outcome that will inform a voter of who they want to vote for in any meaningful way. I want to posit to the group is, we're really smart people. Let's fix the debates. What can we do to make the debates better? To make them, to allow the candidates to actually speak to voters in a way that would matter? Uh, and then to answer questions that people actually give a shit about and not just something cooked up by Anderson Cooper. I think that one of the big problems that uh, that we face this time around that isn't that's become more and more common in the past decade, decade and a half is it's really hard to have in a debate with more than two people. And I think it gets exponentially harder for each person that you add beyond that. And so once you get to six, eight and higher, like you cannot have a debate. You can have a couple of people answering some questions, and I, I think that that sort of ended up to where we are. Um, and I think that surprisingly, that this time around, the debates are being more informative than they ever have been in the past because they're, to a certain extent, musty CTV. They're being watched in in more part than I think that the, they ever have been before. And um, I caught a chunk of the, the last debate because it was on at a brewery. Um, they had a projector up and there were like 20 people, like about a third of the brewery that were just sitting and watching the debate. And so I agree with part of your premise and disagree with part of it that, that I do think it's becoming more informative because it's not informative as a debate. I agree with that. But like the more people see a candidate, the more they can make an informed decision. Yeah. I mean, I think people watch it. The majority of people watch it like a sporting event. Um, it's like if you're a Chiefs fan and the Chiefs are playing the Cowboys, you watch the game, but you're not going to halfway through be like, you know what? I think I like these Cowboys. Like you're watching and rooting for your side. And that's kind of it. I mean, if you're, like, you're not going to change Texas, your mind. I think then like, that. why not? But I think we got that actually in the 2016 debates between Trump and Hillary Clinton. I think people were watching it as a sporting event. 100 million people or something watched the first one, but I, I don't know how many minds were actually changed by it. So you bring up one point, BJ, which I think is interesting, which is there's too many people on the stage. I agree with that. So here's my my first potential fix. Um, it's like uh, like wrestling style. Like, okay, Wednesday, we've got Kamala versus Joe Biden on stage. Thursday, we've got Mayor Pete versus Elizabeth Warren. Two people on stage, and then they, they can really get to it. Thoughts? I, I mean, you're kind of talking about like a March Madness kind of deal as well. Which, Let's bracket this motherfucker. Um, so, but I think the big problem with that is either you have like it would be very interesting in a certain way to have like intermediate voting, 
where you essentially start winnowing much earlier on and and have like a well this person won the debate and then you go from there maybe not like you're done but like you'll get more airtime or whatever but i i just don't think people are are committed enough to watching that much maybe if it was in shorter segments like you have 15 minutes to debate x topic and then go from there and that's shown a little bit more and so then they can have like the two hours of tv where you see matchups on different topics that might be a way to do it but it, i i think that when you ha when you have so many people that don't have different opinions that all want to talk that you can't have a debate and even and no matter what style you have it's going to be boring I mean, if you had half of the candidates talking to each other about um, their version of healthcare, there would not be a debate, no matter how you set it up, unless you essentially like force them to do so. Um, so, I think that the, I think that you would have to basically have somebody that would actually talk to the candidates and see where they differ and then have those debates as opposed to like essentially where everybody agrees and somebody's like well you know i would have you know five companies in and as part of the uh uh private option as opposed to three companies as part of the private option but i'm full support of the public option and then like again you just don't have a debate with with most of the people um i think like another problem is basically forcing people to hold a stance rather than talk. And I can't think of any way to do that on that's either live or essentially allowing people to talk other like, I feel like you'd have to have them submit answers beforehand and then talk off those points if they're going to do it that way, because, Go ahead. because otherwise you have people that are just like, well, what is what does Yang want to say? Yang wants to talk about basic income, literally every question. And that's not part of a lot of debates. I mean, it's something that, you know, he's coming away from a little bit more. But in the first debates, like any time he had any question, he'd spend like 30 seconds tossing out some answer or some like, I agree with a lot of my colleagues, but it's not an issue if we had universal basic income and then talk for like 30 seconds about universal basic income. So I think that there are a lot of issues that, that you're, uh, that you're coming out if you want a real debate. Spencer, your thoughts? With BJ, that one of the biggest problems we're seeing with the debates nowadays is that there's just too many people participating and doing this kind of format of where the night where they divided the democratic field into two separate debates. Have we had a debate where there were less than 10 people on, fewer than 10 people on stage? No, that, that there were 10 on each night when they did that because there were 20 people who qualified. So, no, we've not. And then the last one, we had 12, I think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the number of people is a problem. Um, I think – go ahead, Spencer. You're getting a situation where our candidates that you put on stage are getting to say less than 1,000 words in a two-hour debate. Um, and where you guys were saying – for that kind of compressed format of where you only have such a very limited opportunity to speak, all you can deliver is a canned answer. 
all you can deliver is a very pro forma response to each of these questions, because what else can you offer other than the soundbite? It doesn't make for a very meaningful debate. They've, they've done a good job at addressing some interesting issues in the debate. And but the main thing people are remembering is just kind of the moments where the candidates are punching each other, like you said, like a sporting event. I think doing a round robin kind of thing could be interesting in terms of a way of resolving that. The concern, I mean, the reason that they've kind of done this particular debate cycle the way they've done is because both the parties got a lot of criticism from certain groups in 2016 that they were being exclusionary. They were trying to purposely limit the field based on who the party elders wanted to be the candidates. And so they've kind of overreacted to that to a certain degree by allowing criteria for candidates to be on the stage that now allow that even if the debate that's coming up in November, we're still probably going to have at least 10 candidates. I mean, Marianne Williamson. Way too? No, no. How many candidates are going to make it to the stage now in November? Do we know? Probably eight. We're starting to get a bit of a wheedle down, but this slate to the race, we're still getting eight candidates that are on the stage. Uh, I understand that. It's Dr. also in, insane that we're quote unquote this late in the race and we're this far out. I feel like in any other country, it'd just be like, what are you people doing? And what is wrong? Never stops. Well, they do vote in, in Iowa in February. So, I mean, we're getting there. I think uh, we're hitting on two main issues here. One is format, and that's talking about the number of people. I threw out one-on-one -on -one debates, maybe 30 minutes, you know, between two candidates, and you kind of mix it up um, over a maybe two-night period. Um, but I think another issue that I think, BJ, you were hitting on, uh, and, and Spencer, you touched, is the questions or the content that's being, you know, pulled out from these candidates. So here's my second suggestion, uh, is that we crowdsource it. So it's like a, basically like you do like a Reddit thread. 100%. You crowdsource the questions. The most upvoted questions are the ones that get asked to the candidates. Um, never, Yang would get every never question. Do this. Never it would be do awesome. This. No. It would be incredible. Every question. I think it'd be. Yeah, you've ever had in your entire life, Derek. I think it'd be fast. Ask candidates what people want to ask them. How is that a terrible idea? I feel. Uh, so Aimed at a heartbeat. Because, I think because that. Fortune yeah. lab, whether you like Nazi questions. For every candidate, this is—it's what happens on the internet. All, all of them would be questions from China, like. Um, but. I mean, you could do some some level of like, okay, you have an account or something. I mean, like, there's ways to do it that aren't that isn't quite like Reddit. But I'm, the general premise is, let's try to solicit from U.S. citizens what they want to hear, in some fashion. Look, I, I didn't find. Go ahead. As Levi was saying, there's just so many examples of these kind of polls done with good intent that have just been so quickly skewed. I mean, these are the kind of situations of when, you know, Justin Bieber was set to go to North Korea to do a concert because they allowed the Internet to pick of where Pitbull was set to perform at a Walmart in the United States. And so they sent him to Kodiak, Alaska, because it was the most remote Walmart possible. It, and that and was he did hilarious. it. It was great. He was actually he actually got a lot of marketing kudos for it. Of where Taylor Swift was sent to go perform it to a school of the to a school of the uh, deaf. Uh, for her concert just like if the internet finds this they're going to find a way to warp it it's just it gets to a point of where internet democracy i just worry can't work just because it is run by trolls you're citing the most extreme examples of this not working you, you you've gone the pole of like the example of this being gamed there 
are times though when things get crowdsourced and it's not completely ridiculous there's a lot of amas that politicians have done that actually generated really good content not the beto o'rourke one he got murdered but one was pretty good i think elizabeth warren did one a few years ago that was pretty good so like there are examples of it working too just because it hasn't worked at certain times doesn't mean it's never going to work so it only it only works if if there are a lack of focus and effort on it and you're asking for the most highly sort of focused um you know political events of the year to not be trolled to death this is just literally impossible. I mean, fundamentally, the problem, the problem with the debate format, as Spencer pointed out, is, is that we're artificially inflating uh, marginal candidates that really don't have a base and they're being, being given a voice so they can shape the conversation. Um, I mean, is, is someone who does like a 50-minute interview, preferably an hour, um, who, who drills into their past and really clarifies what people's positions are. Um, and says, you know, 1982, you wrote a college thesis on, on inflationary policy. You know, monetary policy, but now you're supporting, you know, whatever. Like, you want someone who's really going to do, do the research and drill down, but that is not the modern news cycle. The modern news cycle is lazy. Uh, so, I mean, honestly, I, I think fundamentally we should need to overthrow the United States and just start again. <laughs> All right. There, that's one suggestion. Uh, yeah. So you're, you, you kind of went into another angle here, which a lot of people talk about, which is let's get rid of debates altogether and just do long form interviews, which I think is OK. But then you're up to the whim of the interviewer. And, and I, the best example of this, I think, was the commander in chief forum they did in 2016 uh, between Trump and Hillary and, and Matt Lauer, who, um, you know, he's aged well. Uh, he asked, I don't know, 47,000 questions about Hillary's emails. And then he would like let Trump just yammer for an hour. Um, so, you know, if you do have an interviewer that interviewer that has those biases, that will come out as well. So, so I think you, you're still running into that problem that you guys are suggesting with my crowdsourcing ideas that you, you have somebody who, who gains a system. I think that um, a relatively fair way to do it, and I think this would get at least some interesting stuff going, is having candidates submitted questions that the other side can nix like two of five or something like that. And so you have yeah. opponents essentially forcing their their strong or you have candidates forcing their strong points and or their opponents weak points and at least some degree of, you know, nixing on on certain things that, you know, I could see being a significant issue in at least certain debates where, um, you know, somebody is like, uh, Kamala, I want to talk about your uh, this specific part of your record as like one of the debate questions and everyone just being like, well, that's the dumbest thing. Like, no, like if you have five people, only one person might want to talk about that or whatever it is. Um, and that way you get some sort of crowdsourcing, like you get the sourcing from the campaigns themselves. And there are definitely going to be campaigns that are just like, hey, what's a question that you feel like we should discuss in this debate? And so it's moderated by a large political organization, admittedly, but you have people presumably wanting to get their specific point of view out that differs them from the other candidates. And so they're going to focus on things that separate them rather than the things that, that make them similar. I don't hate the idea of candidate um, provided questions. You could maybe do a situation where, let's say you have five people in the debate, every campaign gives five questions to every per individual, right? So they're, they're targeted questions. The Pete campaign gives five to Elizabeth Warren, Bernie campaign gives five to Elizabeth Warren, and then they can cull through those. That might work. 
you certainly don't have the risk of uh you know 4chan coming in and asking everybody to talk about their favorite porn video or whatever yeah exactly and and i think that you know it also leads to people getting on their soapbox about things that they want to talk about and then other candidates knowing that they need to talk about it too or you know what they want to hit them with in, in terms of like hey i sincerely disagree with you here all right well we did not fix the debates um you guys did not like my suggestions we'll discuss it spencer you got something else question for me just something i've seen proposed by a few people i know that i don't really see how it would improve things for the debates but it might be interesting in terms of the actual voting itself but a few people have been trying to push that with the sheer number of candidates that we have now that in the primary they should essentially allow two votes that you pick your primary choice and then the event that that candidate gets under a necessary a set amount of support you have a secondary choice that your vote would then go to instead because your right candidate choice voting voting yeah they do that yes. mm -hmm. you guys think about that in terms of introducing the primary with the sheer amount of candidates that we have now it's going to be predictable that i like it because i've talked about on this podcast before how at one point i had a elizabeth warren shirt uh, andrew yang hat and a pete Buttigieg bumper sticker on my way to work so <laughs> So I like the idea because I, I can't, you know, in a field this large, I can't really settle on one candidate. Um, BJ, what do you think? Um, I, th I think there are benefits and, and problems with it. I think it's great for an informed voter base. Um, but I think it's going to be tough to uh, basically have everybody say, well, here's my ranking of one to 10. And I feel connected enough to the candidate to then come out in the general election. And I hope that's not an issue, but that sort of worries me where people just get political fatigue, where they're not sort of like us, where we're deeply embedded in, and interested in it. And it's more just like, okay, so now you're telling me instead of like, I vote for the one person that I vaguely care about, I have to figure out how much I care about 10 people and just get completely turned off. Well, isn't ranked choice voting though they have the option? They can they can just vote for one if they want to. Hundred percent agree, but if, if yeah. you know somebody shows up to a polling place and then is told like, hey, you know, here are the ten candidates that are running for president, here are the five candidates running for Senate, and here are the fifteen candidates running for the House seat, and you know, the five candidates running for, you know, county judge, and then they're like, All right, well, have five minutes until my three-year-old starts whining so that's not going to happen i don't know what do you do to improve that voting experience that's always going to be uh it's going to be what it is with kids are always going to bitch about anything it's going to happen uh levi anything to add uh on this topic yeah i mean yeah. um fundamentally country is is and not the country. This is the sort of world writ large, right? Um, and we see, we see this across the globe. Um, we're in an absolute downtrend um, in terms of, of, of politics. And I, I think it would require major reforms. And, and what I've noticed out of America is that people seem to be afraid of radical change and, and whine about how complex and, 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 and painful it's going to be. Like the concept of switching over to the metric system is, is beyond the pale, right? $50 billion in. And we'll get it yada, right? People in America, we like to talk about how um, innovative we are, but we're not. I mean, we're fundamentally lazy and terrified of, of change. So um, 
I think radical change is the only way to, to, to really move the needle. Um, these incremental approaches won't work, but that is the difference between you and I, Gary. Like a citizen of Massachusetts with the senior Senator Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> so um, you, your rant, Levi, reminds me of a, a somewhat on-brand uh, story that I, I didn't have in the first one, but I'm probably going to forget before our next uh, pod, which is... Um, so my girlfriend was out visiting me uh, about this past week, and I was um, uh, I had talked to her about going to to my uh, physician, and then I was joking with her that um, Levi, you and I were going to go fifty fifty on a cabin in the woods, so we can die off, uh, go die somewhere like where where nobody can find us, um, off in the woods somewhere, and all together. <laughs> Um, she was like, well, now I like, I can contact Sam and like, we can start a search party because there's no way that you're going to be a fucking cat and like slink off into the woods and die somewhere. And it's just like, I don't know. I'm pretty sure we're fairly resourceful. Um, and I got hilarious amounts of pushback for that. So, um, I just want to on air tell, tell you that that was, uh, something that I put forward and I feel like you, you would be a. All for this. Yeah, I could see myself talking Brie and Sam no, I, out of it. Just like, look, guys, they've been playing this for a long time. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what happened. Like, I'm, I'm going to gut into one of us and just, just die a lot of vultures eat me. Um, that's just how, how nature should work. So, so is this the same place? Like, is this cabin like a compound as well for like your the the seeds of your radical ideology for for a major change in the us or is this like a separate uh thing i got a one-way ticket to like saskatchewan and then just like walk and die somewhere not as much a fan of the uh old people on an ice flow i mean if i can get up there i don't think ice flows will exist in, in, in 10 years fair enough yeah, really, really rosy end here to the pod. Um, anything <laughs> anybody else wants to add uh, to further depress the listenership? Spencer, you want you want in on this, Kevin? No, thank you for asking. No. <laughs> Spencer's good. He'll well, die in a hospital like everybody else. <laughs> Spencer dislikes doctors enough that that I don't know that that's going to happen. I will comfortably die at home in my own bed, and that will be good enough. I do not need to make a thing out of this. <sighs> okay. All right. Well, I think we've covered a range of topics here. Man, <laughs> we've hit the nader this time. All right. Anything else we want to hit before we wrap this up? I'm worried where we'll go from here if we keep going. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. This has been a lot of fun. Swiss Game of the Weekends, part two, recorded on October 19th. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Looking forward to the next time. See you. Oh, 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 oh,